in the world's public is Chuck D. In the noise. FM Podcast Network, I am Chai Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, hope all is well, hope all is blessed. We have an interview for you to step two, and this one is an incredibly special one for me personally. Um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of times where I do this show, and I, you know, want someone that has done the work just to like you know just to just to break it down for me a little bit you know or just to or just to I, I, I don't know just at least validate you know vindicate <laughs> my my personal feelings right um, that sounds selfish and it is but you know I have my name on the show so you know eat it um but yeah sometimes I just want to speak also just have conversations that are you know, substantive, you know, um, I, I, my friends are my friends, I love my friends, and, you know, I can have deep conversations with them about certain particular things, but maybe not every single thing, um, and, you know, there are just some topics that I feel are just, uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to burden some, uh, burden a friend with that kind of conversation, you know what I mean, but I was introduced, um, to this, uh, book, and an offer to interview the author of said book, and I jumped to the chance. Um, it's rare, I, I've never, rare, it's never happened uh, before this, I never got an email from a publicist asking me to <laughs> interview a freaking professor, um, but here we are, uh, you know, new things happen, you know, it's just, it just happens, you know, I mean, doors just open in front of you, so all of a sudden, that's just life, isn't it, um, but yes, so, we are here for an interview with Dr. Hajar Yazdia, um, who is a professor of sociology at, professor of sociology at USC, University of Southern California, and uh, she has written a book, um, dropped, it dropped in late May of this year, um, but it's called The Struggle for the People's King, how politics transforms the memory of the civil rights movement. And as you can imagine, it is a book, very academic, um, very well researched, ton of references, ton of, um, you know, figures and, ch- well, not charts, but yeah, flow charts, I guess, inside. And chapter by chapter, in a very good chronological order, breaking down um, how people of certain movements across the American uh, spectrum have uh, used Martin Luther King's voice and used his obviously speeches and his quotes and his famous quotes um, to make their um, to make whatever they're doing, whatever their crusade is, uh, to make it kind of viable in some ways and to validate it through the lens of one Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and as you can imagine, um, a lot of them are. <laughs> 
distorting that um, that memory. And we get into when we get into the interview, we get to uh, things you know about collective memory and individual memory, and how the systems of power use that collective memory in order to um, you know make um, to make decisions and to um, I guess. Uh, justify these things that they want to do um and you know a lot of them are you know objectively very wrong um and you know i'm sure for those that have that are aware um there are a lot of times where mind of king jr's voice i mean that happens every mlk day in february in america um you see a bunch of republicans and etc just like you know referencing king and it's just like are you joking? And they're not serious, and they're actually just distorting his, uh, just make taking his voice for their own um, very, you know, nut jobby tendencies, and they just, you know, then they just walk off, and it's like like nothing happened, like they didn't just take some dude's voice and completely distort it. Um, but that's basically what the book is. It's just a one big analysis of um, particular um, elements of American history um, and uh, how. You know how they distorted Martin Luther King's voice. Um, so in these chapters, you have stuff like um, uh, LGBTQ family values um, activists, uh, immigrant rights activists versus nativists, um, Muslims, um, and how you know, quote unquote, the, the new blacks, right? And that's versus the Islam- Islamophobia movement. It's a very interesting book. Um, and I enjoyed reading it over the past three weeks, and we are here, we are here with an interview with um, Dr. Yazdia, and we talk about, obviously, the book, we talk a little bit about her background as well, as we always do here on Mosgood, um, and of course, we get into our top five, which um, I've never had somebody, um, <laughs> I've never had somebody um, <laughs> uh, immediately tell me off uh, for, giving, for giving them such a task, um, but she powers through and delivers a solid one for you guys uh, as uh, some good recommendations inside that. So with that said, without further ado, grab your snacks, kick back, whatever you're doing, take it easy, and hope you enjoy the interview. Dr. Hajar Yazdia, there you go, right, great start. got it. You know, I've, I've been trying to like say it in my head for like the past couple of days. I was like, Heja, Yazdia. And then. There it is. And then, and it. yeah, I get it a second time, but you know, outstanding bowl from me. Great start. But yes, how are you doing today? <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Outstanding. Um, yeah, so obviously we're here on the front of um, the release of the book earlier this May. Well, uh, yeah, this year in May. Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, but yeah, as we as we always do here on What's Good, it's um, also getting to know the person behind whatever work we're covering. Um, so with that said, uh, Dr. Yazida, Yazdia, where were you born? I was actually born in Berlin, Germany. And it's interesting because I grew up in the United States. I'm very much a quote-unquote American, whatever you want that to mean. But, you know, I come to everything in my life from this perspective of a kind of outsider because Mm. my parents left Iran when my mother was pregnant with me and it was in the dead of night. They left without telling anybody and they ultimately, you know, crossed the mountains. They ended up in Turkey 
And then eventually in Germany, where, you know, they were willing to kind of go anywhere. And the United States said, hey, we got a spot for you. So that's how we ended up in the States. And so, you know, we could talk about this more, but I always feel like there's this narrative about like, oh, like, it was so beautiful that the United States accepted you and you're so lucky. And, you know, I think for my family, it's always been this kind of ambivalence, sort of like, yeah, it's cool. It hasn't been that great, you know? So I think those are some of the, the larger questions that actually shape a lot of the work that I do. Oh, yeah, outstanding. Um, yeah, there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack in that. And I feel, um, you definitely, as an academic, I feel, I have a feeling that uh, you're a type of person that, um, you know, tries to, I guess, make sense of that, you know, how, how you worded it. It's like, um, you know, an American, whatever that means, right? And there's a lot of um, unpacking that comes with that, especially um, with uh, immigrant parents as well. Um, yeah, I'm second generation British, so it's not really um, anything that I try to, you know, that I, could, that I can you know, take away from that, apart from, you know, my, my nan came here, my pops, <laughs> my pops was born, and then I'm here, and, you know, there's just a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, backtracking that's re- required on that front, but anyway, um, I usually ask, uh, what was your environment like, um, but considering <laughs> several places, I'm sure you've, uh, uh that you've been to throughout your um throughout your youth um i'll try and rephrase it in a in a way that i actually gained from another interview uh from a couple of weeks ago um shout to Oliemi Alurin, who uh interviewed marianne williamson and asked her uh describe your america so i'll take that and throughout your youth especially what was your well how did you see America in your youth wow what a question yeah so I mean I grew up in northern Virginia you know just outside Washington DC my parents were political activists in Iran and they always had a really strong sense of political education political consciousness and they felt like you know activism is kind of our work as people on the ground to fight for the oppressed right is just the work of being a human And so I was raised with that ethos and yet grew up in a community that was predominantly white Americans. We had a lot of military families that lived in the neighborhood since we were so close to D.C. And so that conservatism definitely shaped, you know, a lot of the social spaces that I was in, the you know education that I received. I even think about now I was talking to my husband. He grew up, you know, in California. And so. I was like, is it normal that we sang these military fight songs in in like second grade? Like that's what we were learning in our music class. And he's like, wait, what? So, you know, things like this where we had this strong sense of being socialized into patriotism and, you know, really raw, raw America. And then at home, I'm receiving all of this critical education about asking more questions, right? Like, why is it that we take certain things for granted? Why do we assume that America is superior to other countries? You know, and I'm growing up in the context of the Gulf War. And so it's people like me that are, you know, being bombed that are, quote unquote, over there. So these were always questions that kind of nagged at me. But of course, you're a kid and you just want to fit in, right? And so for me, it was always about kind of making myself small and not saying too much, kind of going with the flow. 
making sure that people liked me. And I think it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I realized just how much the system of power had shaped the way that I just couldn't really be fully me. I couldn't ask those big questions that like really kept me up at night. No, indeed. I feel like, um, especially over the past um, 10 years, I feel um, there's been a lot of people that have uh, either been forced to, you know, ask that question within themselves and just had a lot of veneer, um, I think, just moved out of the way. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, I'm only, I'm only 27, so I can't uh, gauge, you know, Thatcherism era, Reagan era, or anything like that, or even civil rights era, obviously, right? Um, but <laughs> it feels like, uh, you know, especially in social media age and, and things like that, you're, you know, for better or worse, exposed to, um, a lot of, um, obviously viewpoints. And as we'll obviously get to when it comes to the book, um, a lot of, um, I guess purposeful distortion, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, which, you know, has, was considered the status quo for a long time. Um, but then, you know, scholars and academics and activists actually, you know, give a different viewpoint. And then that's actually, you know, then that, then that friction happens. And then, 100%. and then <laughs> distortion of, <laughs> distortion of certain people's words come to, come into frame. Um, you mentioned actually in your book, um, in the, preface and acknowledgements i wanted to read this quote because i found it just interesting in terms of i guess uh you know a more personal angle in your life so bear with me on this one uh in many ways what brought me to this work was my own recognition of my place in white supremacy i'd long been troubled by the legal designation of middle eastern and north african people as white being white on paper meant nothing to not, nothing in my day-to-day life where i was continually asked where i was really from preach <laughs> uh yet it was only over time that i realized that although i was not seen as white, i still benefited from my ethno-racial obscurity and ambiguity and that i had internalized many of the racial logics that privileged appeasing whiteness uh conceding to power staying small and out of sight as you mentioned obviously right um and <laughs> i found that interesting just um not as uh, any you know preface to a question but in terms of just uh that um you know i guess that self-acknowledgement right that um you're covering a topic you're covering a, a a large a wide base um you know throughout your book of um you know civil rights and then all the way to something like you know feminism specifically black feminism in recent times um lgbtq issues in this in this day and age um yeah <laughs> i just i just found that i just found that particular part very interesting there was no uh there was no particular um uh question on that on the back of that but i just wanted to yeah say you know for, for that particular part much appreciated because you know i feel um i don't read much uh book as academic as this um uh, uh you know unless it I guess uh, intersects with race. That's kind of my thing personally in that intersection. And I kind of like seeing things through that lens and also hip hop, but you know, that's, that's, that's beside the point. Um, but yeah. I just, yeah, uh... no, I'm, I'm really glad you drew out that part because, oh. you know, one of the things I've heard 
from some people since the publishing of the book is that they wish there was more of me in the content of the book. Sure. And I say in that preface that it was a back and forth for me and thinking about just how much of myself to put into it, because of course I came to the book, I came to the writing of it, the interest in it from this perspective of having long felt like an outsider and then having made sense of my own experiences through the black radical tradition. And so it just felt like, you know, because I wanted this book to center the sociological evidence and not my own personal experience, I didn't want to make it about me, right? Because I feel like that actually would be doing the exact thing that I was talking about in the book, which is taking up space and co-opting Black experience, right? For your own gains, for your own political purposes. But with that said, I do think, you know, it's so important to situate yourself with whether it is academic work or you know any type of work that you do to situate yourself within it and think about like how does my position in this world the level of particular status i might have power i might have that i can't even see like how does it shape the way people are receiving me opening up doors or closing them right all of these questions i think that reflection piece that you mentioned is what always comes up for me and so i i felt like it was important for me to start the book off with a discussion of how I came to this, you know, how I see myself. And then the fact that it's an ongoing journey, because I think it's not like you have this one moment of reflection and then you're done. You know, you're like, all right, I figured it out. I know who I am. Like, I get it. I've got a little bit of power here, a little bit less there, and we're good. It's ongoing. I mean, I'm still doing this work and I have to check myself constantly. Like I've, I've been doing so many of these great podcasts. This is a really exciting conversation because I've actually only talked to US-based podcasters so far. But, you know, I find myself on some podcasts where it might be like a white podcast host, they have a more moderate audience, maybe even more conservative. I find myself doing the old, you know, kind of song and dance, hemming and hawing, you know, <laughs> and, and like I have to check myself and be like, oh, oh. I, I have truth to speak here. Mm. And I cannot get back into the pattern of being scared of people pleasing. Like that is not the work that I'm setting out to do. Yeah. And I appreciate, um, uh, and you know, uh, appreciate you for, you know, being, uh, for, for knowing that you can be open here, honestly. Um, you know, it's nothing, um, there's nothing here that, um, I feel, you know, can, not be broached uh <laughs> i could serve you in no fucking way trust me on that it's, it's not happening here um you know <laughs> listen to any regular episodes and uh it's just a lot of um yeah there's just a lot of swearing and a lot of uh lamenting uh the british uh poli- political system um at least, at least at least 20 minutes out of the episode <laughs> <laughs> I, try, I try to keep it varied but it, it, it happens you know what i mean just just stuff happens and just it just pisses me off anyway. Um, yes. but yeah, uh, yeah, no, honestly, it's, it's, it's good that you, um, you know, you feel that you, uh, you don't have to, um, hum and haw, uh, for this one. Um, and I appreciate that. But yeah, um, I guess, uh, back to your, um, I guess, uh, upbringing. Um, and I kind of wanted to just find this, uh, find this through line to get to the point where, you know, obviously where you're at now, professor of sociology, USC. It's very um uh sometimes I sometimes I read like uh, articles from actual from you know professors and that and I'm always fascinated just by the by the titles they have uh, as just general <laughs> occupations. It's kind of guess. It's kind of cool, you know what I mean? It's just like oh, I'm fresh at this, at this. It's, it sounds 
it sounds very prestigious um but yeah that's just a that's just a passing comment but yeah i just wanted to guess i uh, find that through line to you know where you where you were this where you were this girl growing up and you um you know mentioned that yeah uh, you know forcing yourself to be small um and you mentioned um it within that uh talking about uh you know kind of like a i guess an inflection point where you were just why am I questioning? Why am I not questioning? Right. Questioning. Why am I making myself small? So when did that particular flashpoint happen for you? Yeah. I mean, I would like to say it was like one particular moment, one catalyst. Mm. I think it was more of a snowball. So my mom had been sharing with me since I was a kid, you know, different, like I would read her Ms. magazines, which were, you know, deeply feminist. And so the critical thinking was always there. She herself, when she came to the States, went to Howard University, which is a historically black institution. And so I think the kind of education she received there, she'd already come in with a critical lens, a kind of Marxist lens. But I think sitting and listening from black Americans opened her own eyes to certain things that she then wanted to share with us. And so when I was growing up, she gave me books from Bell Hooks, you know, Franz Fanon. And as I got older and and went to college, and I think this is, if we're going to think about a real inflection point, I think it's the fact that September 11th happened in my second week of my first year in college at the University of Virginia, which I don't know if your listeners know is in a, a kind of conservative Southern part of Virginia. And so you know, we always distinguish the place I grew up, Northern Virginia from Southern Virginia. We call it Nova, you know, Northern Virginia. We right, always okay, want to kind yeah. of, we were like, we're different. Uh, you know, there are certain critiques I have about that to begin with, but all to say that we're in this moment of hyper patriotism. You know, this is a moment where folks are cheering as we drop bombs abroad. There is a lot of collective trauma that people are processing and they are looking for scapegoats. And the scapegoats are people that look like me, that have names like me. And so this for me is a moment that puts me a little bit over the edge, especially as you know we enter 2004, we go to war with Iraq under this false premise of weapons of mass destruction. And there's this huge anti-war effort in the streets and it seems to make no difference. And so I think... It's the intersection between that political moment and then also my own education at UVA where I'm an English major and I'm taking these courses on Asian American fiction, African American fiction, post-colonial literature. And I'm realizing that these questions of identity that have bothered me for so long actually can be situated, right? And like these larger theories that help me make sense of how there are social forces, like there are structures out there that have told me who I can and cannot be, and that I actually have agency within them. It's not just given. It's not just a natural thing, and this is just how it is. Like, there's actually movement in there where I can make choices. So I think that was, if you want to call it a radicalizing time, but of course, you know, it wouldn't be like another six years before I went back to get a PhD in sociology specifically, because Though I loved English literature, I felt like I wanted to take those theoretical tools and then apply them to the real world. I wanted to be able to answer the questions that I'd been asking for so long. So I think that was really the journey. And it took, again, like I said, so much self-reflection because I'll be honest, I also spent a lot of time partying and not focusing on anything particularly meaningful or concrete. And I think it's easy to look back now and think of a lot of 
you know, the partying is actually a way to numb myself to a lot of the pain that I was experiencing. But like, I'm not going to act like it was all bad, right? I had a lot of good times too. So, you know, no regrets, but I think it's also a way to understand that, you know, a lot of us that end up in these quote unquote elite positions have had some really messy turns. So it's like, it's not all up and up and up. <laughs> I'll, I'll, make, I'll make sure, yeah. <laughs> That's the, yeah, no comment. Uh, I'm sure there's no uh, particular um, uh, dalliances uh, within 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 the within the uh, realization and stuff like that. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's interesting you mentioned what radicalization. I actually asked um, a few friends. Uh, well, I sent a tweet that literally just asked, "When did you become radicalized?" And um, their answers are interesting. You know, well, uh, you know, just under thirty, and um, for me, it was uh 20 i think 15 16 um for a, a grenfell tower fire which happened in london and um that were, i was actually doing student radio at the time i've told this story on the show before but uh, indulge me listeners uh but <laughs> I, was, I was doing student radio at the time and um i was not really knowing what the show wanted to be instead it actually became this um in eventually after i graduated but um yeah i just started talking about the tower fire because that was just what was happening and uh my station manager pulled me aside uh, afterwards like a couple of days after or whatever just going like you can't talk about the fire i'm just like well why can't i talk about the fire because it's political and i'm just like Wow. No, it's not. <laughs> it's really, it's really not. You think it's political? I don't think it is. Um, but yeah, you know, there's that. But then there was also, you know, some riots happened in 2011, and I was only like maybe like 15, 14 at the time. And even then, that was probably like the first time I questioned something. Where I was just like, okay, so why, why are we talking about the youth that are admittedly most of them are just taking advantage of the moment and not the catalyst for the thing, which is police killing this dude. Um, but you know, that's not how, that's not how it's covered. And you know, in some ways it's still not covered in that fashion. It's always just like, Oh, people, it, there's never, they never get to the root of the issue. Um, exactly. and you know, uh, in your book, obviously, it covers more of the, um, uh, I guess, movements within within certain uh, factions of, you know, U.S. society. Um, but you know, a big part of that in a lot of these cases that we've mentioned is media. Um, and yeah, again, no question. I just <laughs> I just came to that conclusion again. Um, that, yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. No. No. I'm. I really like that you said that because. Well, I think part of it too is folks here radicalize and they clutch their pearls, right? Like yeah. they get scared. <laughs> but radicalize just means to to get to the root of the problem, right? Yes. Like this is what Angela Davis told us is that yes. you have to pull it up from its roots. Yes. And so it's like, I always describe it as like, you know, if we want to put band-aids on things, cool, but we're never going to get to the festering wound underneath, which is infecting the entire body. Like it will kill us if we do not get to the root of the issue. So I think it's so important to remember that because there is this perception that radicals are crazy, but I think it's actually one of the most rational ways to be is to think about why things are the way that they are and to stop gaslighting yourself and everybody around you. Yeah, certainly. I um, highly agree. Um, on the front of the book, um, obviously there are, um, I think, five chapters specifically, um, and they obviously cover and i i didn't actually realize this until i got nearly to, nearly to the end of it um where it was relatively chronological and i kind of appreciate that as a 
I just like things happening in chronological order. But um, I was, I, was, I didn't even clock it until we got to um, until we got to the last chapter about you know feminism, uh, feminism and the Me Too movement. Um, and I just wanted to say I appreciate that, but also. Um, I think you mentioned uh, somewhere maybe in the preface or um, somewhere in the beginning where, uh, you know, there was obviously plenty of other stuff that you could have covered. So I was just curious, (laughs) what was taken out of here? Oh, my gosh, so much was taken out. I mean, you know, I even mentioned in, I think, chapter two, where I cover, like, the landscape of the misuses of Dr. King's memory over 40 years. Mm. And I talk about how initially the project had looked at 11 social movements, So the gun rights movement, for example, you'll notice doesn't have a chapter. And I think it's a really prominent one that helps us think about power and the perception of threat in the United States. Um, And I mean, potentially globally, because we're talking about violence and the United States role in that. Also thinking about um, some of the so, you know, one of my advisors initially in graduate school had said that it'd be really great to include a chapter on the failed uses of civil rights memory. And like I talk about how the animal rights movement, for example, tried to make these really troublesome connections between black experience and experience of animals, like the organization PETA was doing this. And there was huge backlash for very obvious reasons. Um, And I think that could have been an interesting chapter as well, just to kind of talk about the limits of co-optation, right? Like just how much can you completely distort and misuse the past before folks are like, oh, no, no. But that's also the interesting part is that right-wing movements can misuse Dr. King's memory to fight against gay rights, but they can't talk about animal rights, right, as civil rights. And so like, it kind of tells you this thing that I think a lot of folks have pointed out, which is that people have more sympathy for animals than they do Black Americans. So I think that's like its own kind of issue of power and culture and symbols and and sort of thinking about like you know power undergirds everything but yeah i mean i'm like i could spend three hours talking about so much that didn't make it in i'm like should there be a volume two should i do like a volume two of the struggle for the people's king (laughs) Uh, amen (laughs) you know if if, if the people ask for it you know give people what they want on that front you know uh go for it A big part of it um, that I, I, I would hazard to say um, surrounds the entirety of it is this concept of memory and um, collective memory, the individual group memories. And uh, I really love this. Um, I think it's the first figure actually that comes up in the book on chapter one, where it's just basically circles being encircled by other circles. And having that mention of individual memories in the middle and then group memories outside, collective memories outside. And then, as you said, just then systems of power surrounding all of that. Could you help me break that down in terms, I guess, of um, taking one's memory and then taking and then making that into a collective memory and then using that particular storyline that they've given themselves to push out a particular narrative i guess i, I don't know i don't know how to word it how do they take how do they take it how do they take it all in that fashion because it just seems i don't know if they're just like are they just really organized in that fashion where they can just 
take one person's words, such you know, I think you mentioned Glenn Beck near the beginning there as like a starting point. Is it did you just they take Glenn Beck and then they just run with that? I don't know. How how do you break yes, that down? I okay. So I'm I'm glad you're asking this question. It is a complex one. So you know, I I want to affirm the fact that it is confusing because there are <laughs> so many different layers. There are different processes at play. I mean, yeah. we could take the entire field of sociology and put it into this very question because it okay, involves good. educational systems, carceral systems, yeah. like you name it, occupational systems. All of them are at play. So let me try to to give a brief summary that hopefully clarifies a little bit. So a big part of systems of power is that they function even if there is no kind of evil individual at the helm trying to make things happen because of the way that they undergird everything in society. This is the historical piece, right? So I'll speak to the U.S. case. Because the U.S. was founded on the enslavement of Black Americans and on settler colonialism, the genocide of Native Americans, those were baked into a system that privileged white people, specifically white Christians, and denigrated those who were deemed non-white. And that's why when you think, for example, about the history of immigration to the United States, every legal case was a claim to whiteness because whiteness would grant you your full humanity, not because whiteness was superior, because it came with resources, it came with status, it came with open doors, but it also prevented death. If you were seen as white, you would have a much better chance of surviving. And so I think that's where you can kind of understand that it's not just a thing that happened in the past. It's a thing that gets baked in from the get-go. It's in the DNA of society. And so now when we talk about things like systems of racism or structures of racism, we're talking about the way that race, the racial meanings that are embedded in these systems. If you think about who's considered a good worker, right? What's considered the ideal family, who's considered reliable or credible. All of these things are shaped by the racial meanings that are baked in. So that's where the systems of power come in. But then we can get to memory, right? Because I'm like, that first question already could take us like several days. Sure. People do like a full semester on it, right? Okay. I'll get this for free. I'm taking it. (laughs) I love it. Okay. So collective memory Uh is, so we think about memory as this individual thing that lives in our mind. It's just our own But collective memory is this social and cultural process. And so it's always a political story, because if you think about the memory that we share as a people, the memory that connects us in a story of the nation, quote unquote, who we are in relationship to other nations, this is a story that has to make things make sense. It has to legitimize the system of power. And so the stories that challenge that narrative are always going to be invisibilized, they're going to be distorted, they're going to be written out. And it doesn't mean that those stories don't exist in people's individual minds, because those are the things they experience. They're very real. But once you get to this collective level, it's really a story of what what do we remember for every Martin Luther King Day? Well, we remember the really nice guy who loved everybody, who believed in peace, who wanted us to all hold hands and sing songs together. So we don't remember the guy who was radical and was speaking out against imperialism and capitalism. So I think that's the distinction. Incredible. Um, The funny thing is, is that um, as I was reading this over the past few weeks, um, I was learning about uh, the fact that Steven Spielberg uh, has life rights to MLK. Um, So he can own, or two speeches anyway, 
Um, and as a screenwriter, I was just like, what? <laughs> all these, all these films. And I was trying to think of it, obviously, like Selma and that, um, of how they don't use the speeches. And I didn't actually clock that until I learned about Steven Spielberg. And just, just off that front, um, the, you know, again, when you're talking about that, that memory, um, I feel like that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of power there for Spielberg to have for, you know, American film as a whole. Um, having life rights over this very, uh, very storied person in American history. Um, and while everybody can make attempts to drop a, well, like a Bayard Rustin film or something that's coming soon, right? They can do all that if they want. They can out, they could, which is fine. I'm, you know, I, I learned about Bayard Rustin a couple, a few years ago from one podcast about, threading uh, certain people throughout history and i found that very fascinating i didn't realize he existed until a few years ago so you know in terms of storytelling and film all for it um feel free to tell a story but it's just interesting how this one dude (laughs) this one dude just owns the uh i guess the speech and in some ways depiction of this one person of another person yes yeah, so I actually didn't loop. know that. I I did not realize he owned it. I like I knew yeah. he was doing the the yeah. biopic based yes. on the biography by Jonathan Ike, who I had the pleasure of meeting okay. a couple of weeks ago, and he was lovely. But uh, yeah, no, I'll have to I'll have to read about that because you're absolutely right about. So there's the question of ownership, and in the book I talk about the gatekeepers of memory. So these are the folks who own the memory, right? These are the folks who had lived it. We're talking mm-hmm. about Dr. King's children. We're talking about his late wife, civil rights activist in her own right, Coretta Scott King. Yeah. You know, we're talking about the main leaders, John Lewis. And so mm-hmm. Baird Rustin, right? All the folks that in their life were able to stand up and say, no, that's not actually what happened. And I know because I was there. And you think about generational change and turnover. These folks have died and all we have left is their words. And one of the major findings in the book, the thing that disturbed me is this question of media, because you see these moments where it's the right wing distortions of King's legacy that get the front page news, that get the recognition, that get the clicks and all of the resistance, the black communities that are continually at every turn yelling, no, that's not what happened. That's not what he meant. That's not what he said. They're not getting covered. And so this is how you take a false memory and move it to the mainstream. And this is how so many Americans are unaware of the first half of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, where he wasn't just talking about, you know, wanting everyone to live in Kumbaya. He was talking about how he had come to the nation's capital with all of these people to demand something, to march for jobs and freedom. He was making a set of demands and it was not rosy. There was a tenor of anger. There was a tenor of intensity. All of the things that we like to pretend Dr. King never was because we like to mythologize him as if he wasn't a full human. And so I think that's part of the question of ownership is also, you know, you can own it, but then it's also whose stories get told, right? Like who's heard, who's lifted up, who's on the front page, who gets all the funding. And too many times it's the story that fits the easy narrative and upholds the status quo. Yeah, incredibly. Um, I, I'm, I'm relatively, uh, you know, very 
stingy when it comes to you know the conversation of ownership especially as you're talking about in media and also as i'm talking about in you know depictions of stuff like film and television um and etc um you know as a minor tangent something like uh the killers of the flower moon film where it's like i can imagine some people um that see uh people that worked on the film who are osage um kind of going you know it's cool that this exists but it's still it's still you know through somebody else's lens um and you know i'm very just i'm very adamant in 2023 um while this film should exist um it's through someone's lens and it's always going to be flawed because of that it could be the greatest film ever made it ain't going to move the fact that it's still flawed and uh i think it, there was a there was a bit you uh there was a bit mentioned in the uh reminds me of um uh in the in the in the feminism chapter of uh the i think i think it was a, a i don't know if it was a film or a book um but it had like it was uh it was done by two white women and yes the documentary about yes. the rape of Reese taylor yes <laughs> yes i didn't know this uh, and I also didn't know about Alveda King, by the way, just, just for the record. Learned about her and I was just like, looked her up. I was like, wow, outstanding, right? <laughs> but this, this whole, this whole thing, right? As you're talking about in terms of the, in terms of power and ownership and who gets to tell stories is so jarring to me. Um, because even in this, realm where a documentary that is so worthy of being uh being uh to be to exist um is being talked over by two white women it's just it i i can't i can't get out of that jarred nature and yeah, yeah. i look at i look at other people as i'm watching just going you seeing this shit like is it just me you seeing the shit <laughs> yes so you know it's so interesting i think about this all the time because i'm for me, storytelling is one of the most powerful vessels of social change. Of course. I think it's the way that you drive home the humanity of people that have been systematically dehumanized. Mm-hmm. And I wish that there was a world where we didn't have to tell these stories, where we could just, you know, drop facts and people yeah. would learn. Yeah. But stories are much more effective, as we know, than facts, if anything, make people double down on their own standpoint and they get resistant and it's just a mess. But, you know, and that's hard for me as a sociologist, by the way. Sure. But I, right. But, you know, what I think about is cultural production and the politics of it, the dynamics of it. I'm married to um, a white man who was a producer on Anthony Bourdain's show during his lifetime. And we talked about this all the time because they would go to these, you know, far off destinations and they had so much power to shape the narrative, the story of who the people were, what their culture was, what it's like to live there. These are 30-minute shows where folks in America who will never go to those places, this will be their only representation that they receive of this place. And so it was this immense responsibility. And we talked a lot about what it meant that the face of it was a white man. And granted, he was a quote-unquote good white guy, right? He had a critical eye. He spoke a lot of truth to power. But he was still somebody who would never fully be able to be embedded in a community like this, like to understand what the standpoint of those people are. And I think that's kind of one of the questions is when you think about like culture and making art like this, 
people get really up in arms because they're like, well, so what are you saying? Like, we can't actually create anything, you know, like white people have to stand back and, and not create any art, not do any film, not tell any stories. I think part of what you're saying is that it's really much more about having the open space to critically reflect on what has been created. What are the stories that get left out? What are the implications of, for example, in Flower Moon, you know, centering whiteness, even if it is this negative portrayal of whiteness, it's still centering whiteness. Still whiteness. <laughs> yeah. And so it's not about, quote unquote, canceling it. I think that's yeah. where a lot of people are, are kind of misguided is they think it's all, quote unquote, cancel culture, woke culture, like you can't do anything right. And I think the question is just about having an open space to talk about it. Because we have such a simplistic culture, not just in the United States, I think in a lot of Western countries where we want clean binaries, either it's good or it's bad, right? Either it's progressive or it's not. And it's like, I think if we can have multiple truths and hold them in tension, we'll be a lot better off. It's a perfect segue to um, another kind of, I guess, a uh, level of this in this, in this conversation about... Um... Uh, people's stories and um just how how we learn about history especially um you mentioned there's a little quote here in education on education uh nowhere is the making of ignorance more evident than in the american educational system even before the contemporary battles over teaching quick race theory in schools legacies of set colonialism and slavery were intentionally evaded in curricula um <laughs> there's a there's a there's a story, well, not story. There's a, there's a, I told a mate once, um, a couple of weeks ago, a week ago. I was like, imagine, imagine just like not binning whatever we're being taught in education system at the moment, right? Wow. Outstanding. He literally just tried to call me outstanding. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I'll call him back in a bit. Um, but yeah, he, I was, I said, just let's not, let's not try and remove the entire educational system. Brackets, we should. But, you know, rest restart everything. But anyway, um, let's not even do that. Let's just add one one unit, uh, one semester, so to speak, right? And I use Winston Churchill as a as an example. Um because uh, we were um uh my mate was me and my mate was at the cartoon museum and we just like we were seeing like um a history of kind of um uh history of political political drawings basically, um and social commentary in that. And there was one on Winston Churchill, and I was just like, imagine if we just taught in schools just a little bit, just a little bit of how, you know, within the he saved us in World War II stuff, which I can tell you is all we learned, right? Uh, and just a little bit, just, just a little bit of the other stuff, you know, the genocidal maniac stuff. How about we talk about that as well? Because even in that, just that one little bit that you could teach someone, right? That, that in, in that teaching gives someone the, at least the seed that nobody's perfect, right? And even someone can be, you know, a national hero for the rest of time, but is also a gen, was also a genocidal maniac. Yes. And what can, what, what does the, what does the, whatever, you know, teenage brain, so to speak, what did they learn from that? They, you know? It's it's so it's something as so simple as just adding Winston Churchill's history apart from World War Two, and that's a whole lot learned just in that little bit without even having to remove what's taught now. I couldn't agree more. I think it's such a simple change just to 
remove the mythology of, yes. you know, these grand yes. characters in our collective <laughs> memories and in our national histories. Incredible. Remove yeah. the mythology, represent them as full human beings. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to mean that you're denigrating their legacy, right? Although, frankly, I think it would sort of complicate their legacy. And I think that's okay. Like, I think the more important thing is, you know, when we often think about, oh, kids are just like, you know, they have short attention spans these days. Like, they don't care. You know, it's hard to teach them anyway. Why would we add content? It's really more about adding the type of content that helps them connect their own experiences to the things that happened before, the people that came before, and to realize like you do not have to be this exceptional like grand great man to create change in society like you can be a complicated person who you know flunked out of school for example somebody who was dyslexic and had trouble reading like all of these things that i actually think give texture to the folks that we mythologize well but i think part of it is that the process of power wants to mythologize them because it is part of building the culture of ignorance. Because were we to know just how kind of basic some of these folks were, the fact that a lot of them were kind of mediocre in all sorts of ways, then we would think we could do it too. And they do not want us to have that power. They do not want us to have that sense of agency. And so that's really where the danger lies. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's just, yeah, so <laughs> they, 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 they purport that. Um, and even, and, and it sometimes gets to a point of, um, a point of despair for me in some cases where, um, even, even some, even, uh, you know, somebody in politics or whatever, um, they're kind of, uh, like you said, mythologized, right? And, they were in power only 15 years ago, for example, right? Uh, not that long. It's not like it's 50 years ago or 100 years ago. It's fairly recent in the common, in the common lexicon. Um, so why are we seeing, uh, this person? I'm not thinking of anybody, by the way, but yeah, just the thing. Of this I, per- <laughs> you think- I was oh. thinking of George W. Bush. And the way that we are now rebranding this war criminal as like a sweet old grandpa who hangs out with Michelle Obama. I oh. have issues with that. <laughs> oh, you know what? That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good shout. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, literally it's a great, it's a, it's a freaking great example. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I, I know why people, why the, uh, especially the media anyway, so I can, I know why they, they do that. Um, but it's, it's sometimes when it, you know, just comes to the regular person. I always, I always question that. Um, you know, conservative party been here for uh, nearly, nearly over a decade in power here. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm just like, so when's the point when you don't want to vote for them? You know what I mean? Where yeah. I can ha- happily list a bunch of shit that they've done over the past decade. And a lot of them, you know, can be very, a very bad long term, such as um, the billions taken out of uh, uh, activities for children. You know, just giving them stuff to do, right? Just in just in that kind of that little small uh, window um, creates a lot of creates a lot of ills. But you know, I I I I really hope that you know in the, those ten to fifteen years, they're you know they're seen as what they are, right? A lot of I, you know, we can only hope. I think 
we already know how collective memory works and it takes a lot of resistance from the bottom and persistent resistance to actually shift that collective memory. Uh, But we've seen it happen. I mean, I think, I don't know how you feel. I think Margaret Thatcher's legacy has been complicated. I think, you know, there are certainly like characters of the United States, people are rethinking Thomas Jefferson, for example, but it's not widespread, right? Yeah, and I yeah. I do think there's, I think about this a lot, especially right now. It's something that keeps me up at night is this question of why it is so hard for really well-intentioned, good-hearted people to question authority and to stand up to the status quo. And I think it's very easy for me to stand here as somebody who was raised with the spirit of activism, with the spirit of resistance, to understand that as our job um, and to be confused about why it's so hard for other people. And I think that's the leap I've been trying to make is to understand that. And I think part of it really is that like the social psychology of it is our brains do want to do this work of lumping and categorizing and having sort of clean lines that make the world make sense. And we're handed down stories that are simplistic. They make us feel safe because they position very clear boundaries around quote unquote us and quote unquote them. And so it's really easy to jump onto a narrative that they are the threat and that whatever action we take is legitimized. And I I do think part of my work as a sociologist, you know, as a public scholar is trying to break down the assumptions that we make that these boundaries are natural and real to ask some of the deeper questions about the humanity that lies beyond and beneath all of those boundaries that are constructed for us. Like, don't we have an inner sense of consciousness and conscience as human beings that supersedes our commitments to boundaries, to nation, right? Like, aren't we at our core just human beings? And so I think those are some of the things that really do trouble me. And when you think about even just, you know, the material resources that are invested in death, in killing people, instead of taking care of our own. I mean, it's shocking. I mean, yesterday I I tweeted a Martin Luther King quote. Imagine that. And it's a really good one because I think it's relevant right now. And he said, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Yeah. Buzz. (laughs) Incredible. Um, I mean, the book doesn't, um, I guess, call for it, but um, I always bring it all. I, I bring most of the issues back to capitalism. That's just yes. me. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. No, I talk about uh, racial capitalism. It's in yeah, you do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, and, and um, I know we're uh, you know, I've got a few minutes left, and um, I also wanted to you know just press upon things like you know whiteness that you mentioned and. Um, I feel, you know, a lot of, I, I feel a lot of that is, um, is part of it. Um, you know, the, I think you mentioned, uh, a particular work where, you know, it's kind of explaining, um, how, uh, racially motivated or even class motivated, um, uh, inactions can, you know, damage everybody. Um, there was also another book I, I, I forget. Uh, who did it but um there was an anecdote i i remember hearing about 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 um a town somewhere in america where they well public pools in general right public pools they're a thing for white people only and then 
now desegregation happened and now there's no swimming pools anymore so nobody can swim it's just yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just literally yeah. cutting your nose to spite your face and it's just uh uh just that just that i guess illness in that sense of um not understanding the um and and taking that humanist approach i guess into you know why why let them swim man like everybody you know swimming's a good activity for people to do and now there's no swimming pools because you just hate negroes doing uh, being in the pools just right it's absurd it's absurd to me yes no but you're absolutely right and it's since we talk about in this line of work talking about race talking about racism we talk so much about whiteness and I always want to be so clear. We're not talking about white people, White people, right? <laughs> right. We're talking about a system that hurts yes. them too. Yes. And so that's why I always say like the project of divesting from yes. white supremacy is for everyone. Like mm. there is collective liberation in that we will all gain if we just work to eradicate it within ourselves and within our societies and yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think it's just a continuing struggle. That's why the word struggle is in the title of my book, right? It's yeah. like, it it is persistent. It may not be gains that we see in our lifetime. These are still conversations worth having. No, incredibly. And um, yeah, it's, it's so, and I feel, um, I feel very uh, selfishly vindicated uh, by this conversation. Um, but, you know, extremely enlightened at the same time, uh, um, you know, the book was very fascinating to read over the past uh, week, a uh, few weeks. Um, you know, just people that I've learned existed, and I'm just like, oh, good, another demon to 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 take note <laughs> of. Else, happy days. Uh, just adding on to the very long list of demons out there. Um, but I guess also just um, I and you know, as somebody that um, has, you know, is aware of some was aware of some of these i don't think i realized how um how ingrained and how i guess uh i don't know what the word is but how like uh learned the the attitude is to distort um just this one guy is kind of fascinating there was another quote i meant to read um that highlighted where the uh someone was talking about malcolm x and how um you know they they don't they don't try and distort Malcolm X and I'm happy they don't because Malcolm X is a G in my mind, but, and so is, so is MLK, but I just, it is fascinating how. But they... you know what? Let me jump in really quick because I think what's, what's interesting is Malcolm X has been distorted and, okay. but in a different way, he's sure. been used as like the binary to Martin right. Luther King Jr. Right. So yes. it's like where King yes. was posed as like the good guy. This yes. is the guy we should follow because he's colorblind and yep. he's nice. Mm-hmm. Malcolm X is like the dangerous separatist. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like he's coming for white people. And so that binary has actually been part of the distortion. Like they've been constructed in opposition yeah. to each other. And so much has come out since about how a lot of their trajectories were actually intertwined and that they actually had a lot of respect for each other. And that during the course of both of their lives, they actually came to much more of a middle ground than folks understand. And so I think that's actually part of the distortion is making certain forms of progressivism, leftism, radicalism seem like they are real dangers to the, you know, the nation, a threat to all of us and to white people when actually they were working in conjunction in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, certainly. And, um, 
you know, I feel that's kind of uh, definitely, it's definitely stuff I glean when it comes to, you know, civil rights movement and, you know, especially things like the Black Panthers. Um, I recently watched that uh, Tupac Dimama documentary series um, uh, sometime this year. And it was interesting just, you know, learning uh, about, <clears throat> excuse me, how the Black Panthers kind of just, kind of just fizzled out. Um, and, uh, the, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of a, uh, a delayed shame in that of just like, ah, oh, it's unfortunate that, um, actually, you know what, as a, as a last question, I find, I'll find, I find interesting and then we'll get to the last two that I always ask. Um, why is it, I guess, incredibly hard, I feel, um, to, uh, to have that kind of one voice mobilization these days? in your opinion? Well, I think part of the distortion of King is that he was a one voice mobilization when in fact, there were so many behind him. You mentioned Bayard Rustin, but you know, also all of the black women, which is something I talk about in the book is these unsung heroes and lifting up, you know, all of their stories and how central they were. I think part of the story now is for one thing, the fragmentation of media has made it really hard to focus in on some of the great speakers. Like Reverend William Barber is one of the great voices in civil rights right now. He has resurrected King's Poor People's Campaign, but you don't see him represented in the news. But then I think, again, going back to the question of distortion, I think we forget that in King's time, you know, he wasn't viewed favored. There was no kind of positive representation of him in the news. There was a lot of whitewashing his record, even in his lifetime. And that was something he was always pushing back against is, oh, that's not what I meant. That's not how I said it. But I think media has always known how much power they have in representing the truth. And this is not to say we shouldn't trust media, but it is to say that I think especially as power has taken hold from the top in controlling media, we no longer have sort of the power of local news like we used to. Now it's really just a conglomerate, a a couple of 0.1% folks at the very top. They have a lot more power to make sure that certain voices are completely left out. And so it's not even that I think we need a one voice mobilization. I think it's it's the question of actually representing all of the grassroots movements that are going on, representing them accurately, giving them the voice in the media the same way we do the right wing movements that are constantly calling on us to shut them down and repress them. That's amazing also. Um, we'll leave it there with the, the final two questions I always ask. Um First one being, uh, what have you been listening to? What have you been watching? What you've been reading? Either of them that you'd recommend to the people. Oh my gosh! So I I watch a lot of trash TV, so I won't <laughs> recommend <laughs> I won't recommend any television. But <laughs> I have been reading Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents series, and it speaks to me in a way where even though I knew of her work, I have cited her before, I didn't realize just how much her understanding of the power of the grassroots resonates with my own. She is the Afrofuturist queen. So I recommend highly any Octavia Butler to your listeners. Outstanding. Um, And the last one, as always, is what is your top five? I preface that with that it is your top five it could be whatever you want it to be it could be as broad or as specific as you like the example i always give is top five pasta shapes if you want to do that feel free here's your top five so that's it <laughs> dr yazdia what is your top five? Oh my god okay uh, so 
this is my least favorite kind of question, Charlie. So thanks a lot for that. It's like, this is the sort of question that takes me three years. And then I want to like go back and provide notes and context for each one. So I'm not just, you know what? I'm just going to go with some top five writers who I am reading right now. Okay. And love. Okay. So cool. PSA Layman, amazing. Jasmine Ward, who just won a MacArthur Genius Award. Well-deserved. Um, Amani Perry. Tony Morrison mm. and Ken Liu. Outstanding. I kind of, I kind of want to just like just go a little bit further just to see if you're just going to think of somebody else and just get pissed off of the fact. Um, <laughs> but that will happen sometime. I don't know when you wake up tomorrow and you'll be just like, oh, I've I got already know. It's gonna... No, I already know. I'm I'm so mad at you. It's going to keep me up at night. Oh, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Um, I rarely get to, this is probably the first second time i've spoken to a true academic um and it's uh it's very it's very interesting um i guess doing something uh you know talking to someone different i usually talk to you know music music artists most of the majority of the time um i've interviewed olympian once that was cool but um wow. yeah to to yeah to interview uh you know an actual you know well an author and also you know an actual professor an academic is um all the more fascinating and to have conversations like these is um always what i want in most in most conversations and i rarely do so um thank you very much for coming through and appreciate your time i so appreciate you it's been a true honor oh gosh okay <laughs> okay i'll take that thank you <laughs> <laughs> So ladies and gentlemen, that was my interview with Dr. Hajar Yazdia. Hope you enjoyed this one. I am so grateful, honestly, uh, for her time. Um, I need to get her back to do 30 questions because <laughs> I feel like asking a sociologist those kind of questions would be very, very fascinating in how she answers them, um, but maybe for another time. Um, there were so many uh, questions that have, you know, obviously after recording, you just like, oh yeah, I could have asked her this, right? Um, but one I really wanted to ask, um, she kind of, she briefly referenced it some at uh, some point, um, you know, talking about educate when we're talking about education, and uh, I meant to ask, did she think her book's gonna get banned? <laughs> and, and I laugh, but. That's a very honest question to ask, right? Especially in where America's at right now. Um, the book banning is back. Book banning is a legit thing in America. And that's a very serious issue. But um, I was genuinely... I, I mean, shit, Dr. Z, if, you, if you're listening, like, you think your book's going to get banned? Like, <laughs> just, just wondering. Just curious. Um, but, you know... With the, with a topic such as this of you know obviously memory collective memory and you know Martin Luther King in general, um, oh how dare you how, how how dare you try and do something like this you know what I'm saying so it could happen it could happen I hope it doesn't obviously for the sake of her work but then again um, there's been a lot of 
obviously um, backlash towards the book banning. Um, there's been you know a ton of events being held about the concept of book banning, and uh, a bunch of authors that have had their books banned, participate in them, and you know obviously um, making that argument of why that kind of why that kind of thing is so dangerous, especially in a um, so-called democratic society. Um, but yeah, honestly, so many. So many things we could have tackled. We only had an hour, and that is what it is. That's the nature of the game. But regardless, I'm completely happy with how it turned out. I'm completely happy that I was given this opportunity. And uh, yeah, I hope whoever's listened, whoever whoever's listening, um, hope you got something out of it. Please, of course, if you want to get the book, feel free to get the book. Once again, the title is the struggle. For the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. And with that said, we'll leave it there, ladies and gentlemen, from the 5EPN. I have a child title, and this has been most good. Intro music was Baxter by Bob Berrigan. Interlude music was New Begins by Coopla. Thanks to Chalk Music for being to use. You can find all the links necessary in the full show notes. And with that said, until next time, until next interview, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.